What ho folks, I'm Lillian Crawford, a freelance film critic and historian focusing on women and post-war British cinema. Welcome to the third season of the Listen to Lillian podcast, part of my ongoing blog on Substack, through which I develop my research on my own terms. Simply go to listentolillian.substack.com to subscribe for a bumper crop of reviews, essays and feature articles. Each episode, I invite my guests to select a British film to discuss, from the silent era to recent releases. All I ask is they pick a film they think is particularly interesting in its representation of female characters, or its approach to queer subject matter. For this episode, my friend Lizzie McCarroll joins me to discuss Merchant Ivory's adaptation of Kajro Ishiguro's Remains of the Day. Here's the trailer of the film. A man cannot call himself well-contented until he has done all he can to be of service to his employer. For 30 years at Darlington Hall, Stevens the butler has lived a life of perfect order in a perfect world. Now, his world is about to change. Well, no gentleman callers allowed, of course. What I do find a major irritation are those persons who are simply going from post to post looking for romance. No offense intended, of course. Oh, and none taken. Columbia Pictures presents a new film from the creators of Howard's End. What happens within this house during the conference could have repercussions on the whole course that Europe is taking. I understand fully. In a life devoted to service. The first-rate housekeeper is essential in a house like this where great affairs are decided. You don't like to have pretty girls on the staff, I've noticed. Why does it be that our Mr. Stevens fears distraction? You know what I'm doing, Miss Kenton? I'm placing my thoughts elsewhere while you chatter away. There could be no room for questions. You do realize that over the last few years, his lordship has been the most important pawn that the Nazis have in this country. It is not my place to be curious about such matters. You're saying that Elsa and Irma are to be dismissed because they're Jewish. We have no choice. It's regrettable, Stevens, but there it is. If those girls go, I shall leave this house. No place for feelings. You're extremely important to this house, Miss Kenton. Am I? Yes. Yes. I have something to tell you. But how long can love wait? My friend, he has asked me to marry him. Oh, In the remains of the day. It's not scandalous at all. It's just a sentimental old love story. Academy Award winner Anthony Hopkins. Yes. Academy Award winner Emma Thompson. James Fox. Christopher Reeve. The Remains of the Day. Hi, Lizzie. How are you? I'm great, thank you. How are you? Yeah, good, good. Just uh, watching films, writing about them. (laughs) That is what I do. Um, Yeah, very, very excited that you have chosen a great film that I love. Um, I, I, I like it when people choose films that I already know very well um, but I also like it when people choose things that I haven't seen and I haven't seen this for a while it's been oh when did I last watch Remains of the Day must have been when I was in year 12 when I was studying it for my A-levels so, wow okay um, I'm trying to imagine how that must play for like a 17 year old oh it played very well especially for, 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 for an emotionally repressed um, so, no, I'd have been, what, 16? 
yeah I was I was a baby um so I um yeah no it was like good good sort of autism representation going on there <laughs> some like good sort of unrequited sentiments uh, pertaining to sort of sex and and romance that, that that were very relevant and I was yeah I basically completely fell in love with it so <laughs> thank you I for think, making me rewatch it <laughs> it's my pleasure I mean I think if I'd seen it when I was 16 actually thinking about it it would have it, it would have hit the spot for me as well but um I always sort of think about things that I saw when I was that age and younger and think about like coming having come back to them later on and it it's always a very different thing. Like I saw Persona when I was 14. I don't really yeah. know quite how, <laughs> how how that played for me as a 14 year old. It feels yeah, quite yeah. divorced from how I probably think about it now. I, I can see that. Yeah. Where, where did I, I first watched Persona in my first year at university, I think, um, which was a, that was, that was a fun evening. I watched like three Bergmans and that was the last one I watched. <laughs> and that was like a lot. Um, yeah, I was, I was a, 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 a lonely student spending my evenings doing little Bergman marathons in my room. Um, anyway, I should invite you to introduce yourself to the people listening. Who are you? <laughs> Who am I? It's a very good existential question. Um, I am, it's a very strange way to have to introduce myself. I am a, well, occasional writer I do a lot of uh, archival research for some very lovely historians, and uh, I am a self-appointed doyen of um, 1930s studio cinema. Um, to no one but myself, of course. But um, <laughs> I, uh, yeah. So I, you know, have been very invested in melodrama and romance, and since in cinema since I was about 14 same age as when I first saw Persona uh, and <laughs> don't write about film too much these days don't really have much time but yeah and I love 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 this film mm-hmm. yeah so what, what made you choose this then because that's quite it's quite a set quite apart I suppose from from what your your broader interests are um or what I would associate your broader interests <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the, the, I remember the first time we met, I mentioned wife versus secretary, and I think that uh, really sets the tone. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, I love this film, and I think it is uh, incredibly beautiful. And I think one of the reasons that I realised this film, I used to watch a lot of Gainsborough melodramas with my grandma when I was a child. And um, I, there isn't, in many ways, there is, this is kind of the opposite of melodrama, because it is all about, as you say, kind of repression and... Um, unrequitedness but um I think it kind of exists in some ways in that same sort of universe of period dramas um very sort of British period dramas and so it's associated with me for those sort of things but it is something that I think as you quite accurately said before really hits the spot for a certain type of I don't know female existence and uh, a certain kind of mentality um that I think many of us experience and I think it's just really exquisitely beautiful and that's that is really why I picked it because I can't think of a film that I've seen in a long time and it really you know again brought it home re-watching it yesterday that um articulates quite so well the um pains of um impossible romances mm. yeah 
I agree with all of that very much. So. <laughs> um, I think that when I first encountered this, it probably was must have been the first Merchant Ivory I've seen. Um, mm. Should say. This is a film made by James Ivory, directed yes. by James Ivory, um, <laughs> in collaboration with 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 Ishmael Merchant, his romantic and professional partner, um, yes. and, and they're great and cute, and we love them. And um, <laughs> this film is sort of like part of like prestige heritage films that sort of come about in the late eighties and 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 nineteen nineties, which is slightly out of my sort of research comfort zone it's not something that I've really um delved into much yet myself I mean I, I I'm a fan of it but mm. um I suppose my relationship with this film is very much comes from reading the book um by um Kajwa Shiguru which I adore and, I, and which I should say I actually haven't read so I will well, I'm make that confession to, now. I, I will try to persuade you to read it. I would love to read it. It's just one of those things that I haven't got around to yet. Very fair. I mean, I, I, it's one of the reasons why I kind of wish, I very much wish and have wished for a long time that I studied English at university is I, mm. I like being sort of forced to read. <laughs> um, when I did my, um, I did a pre-U when I was in sick form, which is sort of like an A-level. Um, and this was the sort of set prose fiction text that we had to, to study for that. And I had to study Remains of the Day for, for two years. And I first read it um, in Barcelona, <laughs> which I remember very clearly. Um, it was a very strange setting to read this sort of very quaint mm. English novel. But then Ishiguro himself sort of, people are sort of baffled that this 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 man who sort of was born in Nagasaki and then and then came over to England basically wrote the quintessential sort of British novel and mm. one that I think has a certain remove from nostalgia and a sort of attachment to a form of Britishness and can sort of look at it very clinically and very um objectively which I appreciate a lot um and I remember reading it um, and studying it and just absolutely falling in love with the book and my English teacher at the time said whatever you do do not watch the Merchant Ivory film adaptation of Remains of the Day. <laughs> I'm appalled to hear that. So, 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 because she, she said that apparently it had nothing to do with the book it was apparently a terrible adaptation of the book and um, that none of that we were all banned from watching it. So naturally I went home that night and watched it um, <laughs> because as soon as someone tells me not to do something or not to watch something I will immediately watch it um <laughs> it's just how I am and I completely could not understand what earth she was talking about because I you know I think I think what she was trying to do was dissuade members of the class who might <laughs> watch, you might fil- watch, watch the film, film without, reading, without the reading the book whereas I'd already read the book about 10 times I don't know, I should... <laughs> um I, I just completely fell in love with it and I was so struck by the film because I think it is a brilliant adaptation of the book um Mm. I can see why she didn't want us to I think because the structure's changed because the structure is sort of um you know the different threads sort of come in and out and and where Mm. we are in the book and he's sort of it is because it's told from Mr. Stevens' perspective in the book, and it, you know the, the sort of flashbacks to to the 1930s at Darlington Hall are very much sort of coming from him and his stream of consciousness, rather and and the diary that he's writing, rather than mm. um, 
you know, the sort of third person perspective that this film creates. So I kind of get what she was getting at, but I, I, I think it's just such a rich um, evocation of the themes of the book and the characters in it, um, which I just, yeah, adore very much. I, so. um, I think, I mean, it's interesting. I sort of knew uh, that the structure of the book is different, but I think that um, the structure of the film is very kind of, I mean, it's, you know, a tautology, but it's very kind of merchant ivory. I mean, have you have you seen Heat and Dust? No, I still need to watch that one. It's Heat very, and Dust very, is very much top of the watch list for them. Um, a masterpiece, and I I almost chose Heat and Dust, but I thought I wasn't sure if you would have seen it, and so I I thought okay, well I'll try and I I, I would have watched it. <laughs> <laughs> it's wonderful, and they did a beautiful uh, remastering of it uh, mm, a couple of yeah, years ago. Really um, but the kind of structure of heat and dust is kind of the idea of the kind of past encroaching on the present in the way that kind of Judy Christie goes to India and she's sort of repeating the steps of her ancestors and I think that this kind of operates in that same kind of sense and it's kind of obviously it's drawing on the structure of the book but it the way it's actually rendered um, cinematically is very kind of in that same pattern as heat and dust where um, it's you know intertextual and it is you know structured in the sense Mm -hmm. that the two are kind of intrinsically well inevitably linked um and I think it's a really you know a really wonderful touch of theirs that they kind of carry that through through um you know more than one film of theirs yeah watch heat and dust everyone watch heat oh yeah (laughs) um and I, th- I think it was after I watched this one that I started watching sort of their other, um, you know, particularly sort of the E.M. Forster adaptations, things like mm. Mor- Morris, which I think, you know, there's an awful lot to, to talk about in sort of the, the framework of this podcast with, with, with Morris. And I think that's yes. a fascinating film as well. And uh, and um, Howard's End, Room with a View, you know, all, all of these sort of lavish um, adaptations by um, Ruth Prowadravala and... and um, yeah, I just like all of them very much, but this one feels slightly set apart. I mean, Ishiguro wrote a film for them called The White Countess, which I still need to see. So I they, they haven't have seen that, but mm. Ray Fiennes is in it. So it yeah. is, I'm on a Ray Fiennes strike at the moment and it is oh, top well, of my list. There you go. That's that's one to watch then, I would say. <laughs> oh yeah, I have it on DVD somewhere. Um, I just haven't got around to it yet, um, which is ridiculous because Ishiguro is, I always say he's my favorite author. Maybe he is. Maybe he isn't. But he's he's up there. <laughs> That's mm. for sure. Certain certainly sort of contemporary. I didn't. Stuff. I didn't even know that he wrote that. Um. Yeah. But it's as I said. It's it has. Yeah. Shot he wrote up the my scre- He wrote the screenplay. It's not one of his books. He. It's mm. his only sort of film credit. But he. Um. I think he came to know Merchant Ivory quite well during the production of the film because this. Yeah. This, um. This this came out fairly sh- shortly after Remains of the Day One, the book. They clearly got along very well when they were making um, the film and, and wanted to work with each other. And this is sort of around the time when, when Ishiguri's career is sort of taking off. And he, mm. you know, there are other film adaptations of his books. Um, plural? No, surely just Never Let Me Go. I can't think of any others. Um, which Not on top of my head. Well, I know that they were, they were adapting Very Giant and they are adapting... Um, Clara and the Sun, which is his latest novel, um, but they all sort of deal with these these themes of repression mm. and memory and sort of 
acting in bad faith you know I this is going to sound terribly pretentious but my the essay that I ended up writing in the exam was about sort of Stephen sort of having an existential crisis in in Mm. the book and I (laughs) took the word existential very literally and basically looked at the book through uh, Jean-Paul Sartre as being a nothingness and the 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 idea of the waiter of um of bad faith who sort of acts without questioning he's just mm. a complete servant to someone and I think it is it is an interesting framework for looking at his character and the and just how unquestioning he is as sort of a servant to a Nazi that's never nothing is ever as explicit in the book as it is in this film and I think that's something that that is my only qualm with it is that it doesn't expect you to read between the lines in the same way that Ishiguro does yeah in the book um there is literally a moment when Stevens goes to a news agent and he's like where have you come from and he's like (laughs) Darlington Hall and he goes wasn't he a Nazi (laughs) it's like yeah but it, it doesn't need to be said so explicitly um I think that actually in the book it relies an awful lot more on the reader's sort of awareness of British history of who Oswald Mosley is um yeah and, and, and which is funny because Oswald Mosley actually gets no mention in the film no he doesn't not not by name yeah they have people sort of <laughs> wander in and out like they have um, and it's fresh in my mind. They have a sort of Chamberlain lookalike come in in sort of the mm-hmm. sort of climactic political scenes, but there is no actual mention of kind of naming names outside of this sort of mention Churchill and Eden and everything. But it's not; they never say Oswald. Who Oswald? The name is never mentioned. No, his, his Darlington's sort of affairs with with fascist women and so on. You know, yeah, all, all this stuff that that happens, and it's. It, it, it's it, you do get some nuts you get some sort of caricature Nazi sharp at one point and they're like this will be great for the thousand year Reich and you know <laughs> this, um, Hugh Grant is, is, is sort of sat there going don't you know what's going on it's like yeah okay this is, this is uh, I don't want to criticize this film too much because I love it so much <laughs> but but I, I I do think that perhaps there is there is an element of sort of insult to intelligence um, in terms of can you just put two and two together? Because that's the, it's, it's, it's that sort of, um, you know, um, unreliable narrator. Yeah. I, I idea of, you know, you, you're the person who's got to sort of put the pieces together, which I love. I love books like that. I love it. When, yeah. You know, you realize that you can't actually trust what nerves going on. And I wonder if, that removed perspective that comes from not having it told through through Stevens mm. disallows that that level of sort of requirement. I like films that make you work, <laughs> and this <laughs> this film doesn't. I mean, I agree, um, but I also think inevitably to kind of go back to the uh, what you were saying before about kind of the heritage of sort of late eighties, early nineties adult prestige dramas sort of talk about it in a very kind of businessy way you know they were being made it is to a certain extent it was exporting Englishness to an American market and how many Americans actually and maybe this is terribly xenophobic how many Americans actually know who Oswald Mosley is? You can't is? be xenophobic to Americans <laughs> I'll cut that bit out um, <laughs> <laughs> but it, you know how many Americans yeah. actually know who Oswald Mosley is yeah. um 
so I guess, you know, and also, I mean, I wonder if that is kind of why no one makes these films anymore or films mm-hmm. of this kind, really, because I don't know, the market's changed and whoever's well, it, has, it has to be like a biopic and we have to talk through every sort of, you know, yeah. detail of these people's lives. You know, the fact that this is sort of semi-fictionalised history is, is, is such an interesting setting for a film um you know which people are real and which people aren't I mean I I I, I should stress that I do find it something that wasn't the case when I first watched this film that I was thinking about when I was watching it this time around is that Lord Darlington is played by James Fox and his son (laughs) literally is a Nazi (laughs) that's that's a really you know the, the the Fox family have sort of all suffered a bit I suppose I don't I don't I mean I don't know what James Fox's personal politics are but if he raised that then I can't <laughs> think he's gonna be that great a guy I think um James Fox is very religious okay um I I could be wrong I could be about to besmirch a good man's name mm. on um a podcast but I believe that James Fox had um a like break in his career because he went to like be a missionary mm. um so maybe there's something interesting there. But um, it's interestingly enough, I almost picked Gosford Park, which mm. is another film that which I love very much, which has Lawrence Fox <laughs> in it. Um, so I don't know, maybe there, there is kind of a, a Fox family stranglehold on these films, what kind of um, maybe right-wing um, <laughs> upper-class individuals, and that's something worth interrogating. <laughs> no, no, Nazis emerging out of nowhere within the upper <laughs> echelons of the middle class. Maybe I mean, who could have guessed? <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. Oh, my goodness. But I, I, I think that that is, you know, within the film, it's so interesting to sort of think about who, who everyone is and who everyone's supposed to be. Like, the... Uh, I suppose there is there is something better about that within the film is that that not everything is stated so explicitly. Um, although it's 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 one of these these things that I really love about sort of having actors who represent certain parts of history and film history in particular playing different yeah. characters. So you have like Christopher Reeve um, playing playing Mr. Lewis, the the American gentleman who is sort of bought Darlington Hall and also the 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 earlier Mr Lewis who is not actually a relation I found that a bit confusing um yeah I think that's a trick that they decided to use in this film to give Christopher Reeve a bigger part um, <laughs> but he's very good in this he he's, is, he's like the symbol of, of the American it. man he is yeah. Superman um and then you also have like Michel Lonsdale as as um as um, Monsieur Dupont the, the sort of the, the French chap with the bad feet and he you know he... I was gonna say there's a lot of feet in this film like that was one of the <laughs> things that we really talked about last night there's an inordinate amount of feet in it <laughs> <laughs> this is not the sort of that's line of inquiry that's that I'm a sure really you... interesting point I'm sure and you we, expected and we will this. we will return to feet I promise <laughs> I I think I I just think that it's so interesting I I, I think that there are films like um Le Mepui by um by Godard which like uses Fritz Lang and, and Brigitte Bardot and Michel Piccoli and and, mm. and and Jack Palance to sort of represent different aspects of his of history and film history and I think that it's really interesting those casting decisions as well within this film. You're about to tell me your, your thesis on on feet about remains on of the feet. day. On feet, 
Um, I don't know if it's a thesis as much as um, the preponderance of them is interesting. It's like, mm-hmm. but it's, I mean, so the interest, obviously the, the French guy comes and there are many, many shots of his feet. Um, as Frank, they're not, not, and... not, not nice feet. <laughs> it should be said. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> There's nothing I mean, fetishistic I just, about those shots. <laughs> no, I agree. It's not in any way kind of, I'm in no way suggesting that James Ivory has a foot fetish at all. I mean, he um, probably does. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> um, do you have a legal team on this, on this podcast? I find editing is a really useful thing to get you out of trouble. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it's not so much a thing thesis about feet as much as I think that it's interesting that you know there are so many I mean the the one of the key scenes in the film obviously is um really that um when Anthony Hopkins father dies mm. um and obviously you know one of the, the the film really you know goes out of its way to point out all the ways in which um Mr Stevens is you know kind of pre almost too preoccupied by his work or too convinced that his father would want him to be preoccupied by his work um, to express any sympathy. And so, so much of um, his, Mr. Stevens's response to his father's death is taken up by the feet of the French ambassador. And I mean, I sort of, I suppose it sort of, it sort of played for a kind of display of absurdity in um, the extent to which kind of Mr. Stevens' own conception of himself and his relationship with his father and his relationship with his job, um, it, you know, it, it's it's designed to sort of amplify yeah. um, how, you know, much this man is consumed by all these kind of duties that he perceives that he has. Um, but it sort of is a very <laughs> particular uh, and strange thing to feature in that scene but I think it you know it is very interesting to have because it's kind of visually pretty pretty gross to be thinking about a man's blisters but then the juxtaposition of that with a man's father dying I suppose you know really clarifies how much as I say this man is you know being taken up by um the very apex of duty and what is that if not treating someone else's blisters (laughs) Yeah, definitely. And I think that what's so so striking about that moment, which is sort of gorgeously shot, the, the, mm. there's so so many wonderful um, two shots of, of Stevenson and, and, and Miss Kenton in this film that, you know, sort of shot through the portholes of doors or, or that, that silhouetted shot of them when they're talking about her, 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 um, his, his father dying. And we in those moments there's just such distance between them it's almost like that mm. it's sort of so aestheticized that there's nothing going on <laughs> between these two characters that she wants there to be I absolutely think that she does um and and she is there's a lot of sort of relatability to her in terms of how she wants to she wants him to act she wants him yeah. to, to 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 make that move with her because that's why ultimately she ends up with Mr. Ben because um which is a name that makes me laugh every time because I just think of <laughs> the cartoon character um but he she ends up with him because he dares to be the person to ask her to mm. marry him and she gives up on waiting for Mr. Stevens to to do that with her um which is incredibly sad but there's there's a sort of 
I, su I suppose we can see where that repression comes from with Stevens when we are looking at the relationship that he has with his father and, and sort of his discussions of, dig you know, dignity and honour and all that mm. nonsense that he keeps talking about is that really what that means to him is to repress one's one's emotions and the most powerful scene <coughs> sorry the most powerful scene for me in the in the whole film and in the book is is the scene when um he's reading in his in his study and and she wants to know what he's reading and you know there, there's there's a focus on feet in the film but there's very much one on hands as well and the way that sort of that that first moment of intimacy between them and richard robin's score is like swelling <laughs> it's like it's such a great score um and 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 she's just like trying to get him to open up to her and it's she thinks that it's something sorted and it's actually this sort of sentimental love story that that that, that she takes from him and the Really, he has these desires, but he just rep represses them as sort of, oh, I was just, you know, studying my my grammar and <laughs> stuff like that. Um, and it's it's so it's so moving in a very with with her it feels very heterosexual, but with him there's a sort of homosexuality or or a queerness to to that sensibility of of sort of you know the way he keeps things subdued and keeps things very much repressed into himself in a very British way um yeah well, how, how, how do you feel about sort of the I dynamic between them so much to say about this please do um so I, I, I release you to do so <laughs> I agree that I think the scene with the book is the central scene of the film on which everything hangs and when I watched it last night with my flatmate who had never seen it before when the kind of the build-up started and as you said the sort of school comes in I was like this is this is the scene and it's kind of difficult to sort of you're, you're building up something because of course nothing as you say nothing happens it isn't sorted it isn't scandalous it's just a man reading a love story um but it is the kind of central scene of the film that kind of encapsulates the whole relationships the whole relationship between them and that it sort of is the most explicit she ever makes her kind of want to be involved in his life um, and his inner world and kind of the most typical example of his kind of inherent reflexive withdrawal. Um, and then hands on the hands point. One of the things that I wrote down last night is that no one touches in this film that kind of anytime anyone touches, it's mm. totally professional. And I mean, the one exception to this, of course, is um, Lena Headey. Uh, as the young maid and the mm. young footman and their kind of background yeah. relationship, which is obviously a kind of point of that's, comparison. That's the, that's the Gainsborough bit. That's the bodice ripping. Yeah, <laughs> that's about as close as it gets to yeah. sort of my grandma's front room in like 2006. Um, <laughs> um, but that and that is really, you know, serves as, the, as you say, the Gainsborough sort of melodramatic point of comparison. Um, but no one touches in this film, like touches hands in any way. And the two times that it does happen are when his father has a stroke, when he's mm. cleaning uh, the hallway and um, Stevens prizes his fingers off the uh, yeah. mop trolley. Mm. And when Miss Kenton prizes the book out of his hands and both times it's really with this kind of great reluctance and these two kind of strange points of contact that kind of serve as comparative points. Um, and when, you know, she takes the book from his hands. And as you say, it's kind of just, a, he said, you know, it's just, a, it's just a romance and it's 
him improving his grammar. It's kind of, he's so English um, and it, he's so kind of bound up in all these ideas that even for her to see him reading this very innocent thing mm. is almost worse than if, or in his eyes, I suppose, it's almost worse than if she'd sort of caught him with something very scandalous because it reveals something that is antithetical mm. to what he wants, what how he sees himself and how she sees him. Um, and as you say, on the queerness point, I think a very interesting scene in this, and I feel like I'm sort of melding all these things together, but a very interesting scene that I, that I picked up on again last night is the kind of is Hugh, Hugh Grant is great in this for a start. He's so good in this. It's pre-stardom, um, which helps, I think. Well, it will. <laughs> um, I agree, but he's only in like four scenes, um, and one of them is that very funny scene where um, Lord Dollington has asked um, <laughs> Stevens to explain the kind of the birds and the bees to Hugh Grant, who is you know twenty-four years old, and Stevens sort of goes out into the garden and tries to sort of draw a very clumsy comparison of, <laughs> and, um, and, and fish. Freshwater and, and yes, salt. Fish, freshwater <laughs> and salt, and burgeoning nature and spring in the garden. Um, but there is the scene after that when he comes back and um, Hugh Grant, um, they're in the drawing room at the conference, um, the kind of political conference that happens. Um, and Stevens is sort of going around and Hugh Grant sort of pulls him to the side and is kind of like, Stevens, I'd very much like to continue our conversation about a burgeoning nature. And it's sort of, plays in this very sort of queer way and it's sort of mm. as if Hugh Grant you know is asking um you know Stevens to or you know it's it's, it's really kind of the the implication is there yeah. of this kind of latent Definitely. um homosexuality and I think that that is and it is kind of really never mentioned again but it's mm. a really interesting scene that in the kind of mix of this and I mean the politics I mean it feels like a strange thing to say, but the politics, the kind of narrative of appeasement really serves as a parallel narrative to the kind of mm. personal repressions of Mr. Stevens, obviously, because it's these kind of two sort of masculine English narratives that yeah. sort of, as one progresses, so does the other. And it's this kind of very interesting scene where the two kind of very briefly meet that in the midst of this kind of political conference of all these men and it's all men apart from one German woman there's this kind of mm. point of brief implied sexual want mm. and it's literally happening in the drawing room at the conference and I think that's very interesting yeah no definitely I think that's that's really interesting and I think that sort of it's so fascinating that because Stevens thinks that sort of everything revolves around Lord Darlington and his yeah. position at Darlington Hall. Like, that is his whole world to him. And what's so interesting is that Ishiguro has sort of very cleverly mapped out almost the history of the first half of the 20th century in Britain <laughs> around him. So, so, so that's what sort of creates this complex. And, you know, the, the, 
the novel the 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 the, the present day in the novel is 1956 it's like mm. r- around the time of the Suez crisis Mr Stevens has absolutely no idea that that's going on you know <laughs> when people ask him like have you met Mr Eden well Mr Eden's but, gonna having a bit of a difficult time at that point and he's just like oh yes is, I think I have met Mr Eden you know the <laughs> film is positioned slightly later because when they are in that pub in that scene mm. the kind of punter who is sort of implied to be a socialist um, because of course, what could be more evil than a socialist? Oh, Harry Smith um, and his um, yes, his, Harry Smith and his politics. M- m- um, his politics. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, Harry Smith sort of says, you know, Eden made Eden made such a cock up of Suez. Um, so I think the fil- the film I think is positioned sort of slightly later than 1956. Oh, okay. so it's not. I, yeah, but it, it's. I, I haven't mean, quite picked up on. It. I think I think because my head is, my head is always so firmly <laughs> within the novel. <laughs> well, no, I mean it's literally. I mean I watched this pretty much exactly 24 hours ago so mm. I'm firmly in the kind of oh yeah I, I mean I watched I rewatched it t- t- today um mm. admittedly sort of while, while doing other things but I, <laughs> I suppose that, that it's the fact that I, I have only seen this film now twice whereas I have read the book I mean I haven't I, I don't even want to guess how many times <laughs> so I've it was yesterday it. the first time you'd seen it since you were 16 yeah and how did it change how like how how yeah. for you did you feel differently about it because I think that's interesting yeah, it is. being twenty-four <laughs> is a very different thing to being. Yeah, 16. no, it, it had. I think that perhaps I was more in tune to the autistic um, coding and sensibilities of Stevens, mm. which comes from being played by Anthony Hopkins, who is himself that's, autistic. Yeah, that's and true. I think that really brings out that aspect of sort of neurodivergence that 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 is within the book that I I. I think I related to, but perhaps didn't quite know how to interpret it. Whereas now I, I, um, I, I'm one of the the hosts on the um, Autism Free Cinema podcast, and we've sort of talked a lot about how we look at films through an autistic lens. And I think that's what really came out for me rewatching it. Mm. Um, also, just how gorgeous Emma Thompson is in this film, <laughs> which She's I perhaps wasn't quite so into <laughs> when I was younger. Um, and 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 I think something else that, that there were other things that irritated me more than the first time I'd watched it, which is why I don't like touching films that I know that I love and I don't need to. <laughs> I got really annoyed that Mr. Stevens smokes cigars in this film because it portrays his whole like persona. Like he he is a man who might permit himself a cup of hot cocoa with Miss <laughs> Kenton of an evening. This man is not going to indulge in luxuries of of, yeah. of drinking and, and smoking. I, I think I think that I found that quite startling and is very much not something that that exists within um with it with, with, within the book. But I suppose the main thing for me was that when I first watched this film I was quite repressed about my 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 sexuality and um and sort of what what desire meant and so on. So I think at the time I I I maybe almost thought that what existed between Stevens and Miss Kenton was sort of desirable or even like, I don't mm. know. I, I didn't find I found it moving, but not in the same way as I do now, where I'm like for goodness sake, man, pull yourself together. <laughs> Can't you see what she wants? <laughs> um, so so I, I think may, maybe I've gone from sort of sympathising a bit more with sort of elements of, of Mr. Stevens' character more towards sympathising 
with Miss Kenton and her I mean I was I was always sort of sympathized with both of them in different ways mm. but I think I think I have less <laughs> less time for Stevens and his <laughs> behavior perhaps it's like just sort yourself out what's I wrong mean- with you? <laughs> That sounds so harsh. But I I know what you mean, because I think for me, it really, and this is such a classic reference, I guess, um, it really epitomises that Simpsons joke where um, (laughs) Bart is in Blockbuster and he, like, sees the adult film section and he goes in and it's just, like, breast off. The Merchant Ivory Merchant Ivory. (laughs) um, Because I can't think of a film that really, I mean, and maybe Persona is one one of them, Mm -hmm. a film that really is about adult relationships and being a grown-up and yeah. what it means to sort of be a grown-up and have responsibilities and 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 then to be sort of in love and to have to mm-hmm. not be in love desperately because you're a grown-up and being so being desperate takes up a lot of time yeah. and you've got you know you have other things to do and I think I you know th- this is a film that really I mean it's an, it's an extreme example of this because it's a film about repression it's a film about yearning mm. and but it, it is kind of about this very adult thing of having to learn you know at this point in our lives that we are at that you know romantic relationships are a uh, they can't be a job in themselves. Yeah. <laughs> um, and but you have to, you know, find the midpoint between being Mr. Stevens and being mm. 16 years old. <laughs> I can't, I mean, I yeah. think I would have loved this film if I'd seen it when I was 16. But I think um I almost sympathize with him more than I think I would have done then. I think it would have upset yeah. me more then because I I think it's extremely moving and extremely emotional um but I think if I'd seen it when I was 16 I would have been devastated because I couldn't possibly imagine um mm. well is this having the, to the, give the, something the sudden fear that sort of dawns on you at that age that oh my goodness what if I never get that confidence what if I'm mm. never able to sort of you know be at ease in in relationships and sort of, and sort of in in in, in that sense and, and 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 what if I go my whole life and end up on I don't know the the pier at the end <laughs> getting on the my, bus oh my god the bus scene I mean that's that's a wonderful homage to Brief Encounter that I adore, and other sort of films where someone's on a Brief train Encounter and... a film that I did see when I was about fifteen yeah. and I was devastated yeah it's it's like this sort of repress repression of Britishness and 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 sort of locking away desire and may, maybe that resonates on start some level with 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 James Ivory and Israel Motion. I mean who 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 knows? <laughs> well yeah. I, I I think that you know there is a there is a queerness to to that to that feeling that that perhaps you know this is a very heterosexual film. I should stress yes. and, and Miss Kenton's desires are very heterosexual because she she sort of is relying on on um on Stevens to 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 sort of for want of a better phrase be a man and sort of yeah. make, make make that that move on her um rather than sort of enacting it herself and she tries oh my god she drops so many <laughs> hints um I think I think another one of my favorite moments in the film is when they're in the greenhouse and um she catches him looking at the maid as she's walking away. <laughs> And you see this little grin on his face, and you're like, you, 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 you know, you know what you like. Yeah, <laughs> it's like just what, and and she teases him about it, and he just sort of walks along with this smile on his face. And she's <laughs> like, 
I, I you can almost see how happy it's making her knowing that he is someone who who has desire yeah um, or or does he I mean this is this is another part of sort of the layers of this of this well film yeah and, and, and that's a good book question is, is he is he someone who has sexual feelings I mean, well, I think I I know what you mean. It's almost as in that scene. I mean, you can read it two ways. You can read it that mm. he is sort of, you know, amused by her sort of recognizing this in him. But then you can also see it as him just being sort of happy and content that she's mm. happy and content and that he really and, and that, you know, he's sort of amused at the you know, strangeness of her saying this to him because maybe mm. he doesn't, you know, experience those desires for anyone. Um, and I think it's, you know, I think it's definitely interesting. And the other kind of um, the scene where um, he's sort of, oh, and I can't remember the context of it, but the scene where he sort of says to her, you know, you are very important to this house. Right. I can't, I can't imagine this. Yeah. Ha- I, I can't imagine how it would be without you in this house. In this house. Um, and that is really kind of. Well, he can't, and he can't imagine he not can't. being, I mean, it's being true. with her. And there is a level of codependence between them, and he's—it's absolutely devastating for him when she leaves his life. And I mean, you see the excitement when he misinterprets that letter at the start yeah. of the whole that drives the whole plot of him going to meet her and and try and trying to bring her back to Darlington Hall is that he thinks that because she sent him like. A letter with some fond memories she immediately wants to come back and be a housekeeper again <laughs> um and it, it it's because he's he's sort of he misses her and that's really really sad and but i um he doesn't he still doesn't say anything um in the same way in the same way that she gets frustrated with him when he has to dismiss the two jewish maids and, mm-hmm. and you know all these other scenarios where he could have done something but he chooses not to and he thinks well it's not my job to do that and that's why he's a good butler but to be to, at the cost of one's conscience and one's morality is is too great I think for anyone and with, even with a reasonable sense of judgment and this is the thing is that you know as you kind of say you know there is well uh, he you know he has to dismiss the maids and they have that kind of disagreement and then I think that is kind of what I said before about the kind of parallel of the kind of political aspects of the personal aspects because I you know I was very struck last night by the scene again where um you know she's sort of crying desperately about having to leave and also almost so loud as if to be heard deliberately Mm. and he sort of allows himself the emotion of accidentally dropping the bottle of wine but then when he actually goes to her mm-hmm. in person he just gives her instructions um and you know it's the same in the sense that you know when he when she kind of you know expresses the emotion of you know I'm going to leave if you do this if you dismiss the Jewish maids that you know he can only sort of speak in he can only actually speak even though you know kind of we I mean, we know, we assume at least that, you know, internally he wants to do the right thing, that when he actually verbalizes this to her, you know, he can only speak in professional platitudes. Mm-hmm. So, you know, so, so so conditioned is he to uh, a certain way of being and a certain way of living that being, you know, confronted with any emotion, mm-hmm. um, he has no answer, he has no response. Mm-hmm. And that is... 
I mean, I totally agree with you that it's, you know, in many ways a heteronormative film and a film about her. Well, certainly from one perspective, from one perspective, it's a film about a heteronormative relationship in terms of what her desires are. But for him, his desires are totally enacted through a prism of his own mm-hmm. repression. And then that repression is, you can code it in so many ways, like through neurodivergence, through a kind of idea of queerness and how he responds to all these situations is almost unilateral but it's unilateral from you can read mm. that uni- unilaterality in yeah infinite ways really yeah and I definitely yeah and there's a there's a fear sort of of it's almost like an excellent film or a sort of warning of what happens if you never develop that confidence it's like yeah you you you, you ca- it is possible to remain within that mindset and within mm. that world and the fact that he gets to the end of his career and believes that he has made some sort of difference that's positive by polishing some silverware or like getting DuPont a bucket for his feet or you know <laughs> all these things it's like that he thinks he's contributed and you and know the, the doctor that he meets at the pub yeah sort of says sort of mocks him and, and susses him out when he's saying oh yes I knew Mr Churchill I knew Mr Eden and he's saying you're not some sort of manservant <laughs> and he's like yes um, it's just why he, he he it's sort of stuck within this limbic state of not knowing what he's actually done but trying to justify it to himself that's really yeah. like it's tragic and it's desperately honestly, tragic. Honestly, it's really pathetic, which is really, you know, there aren't that many films, particularly sort of as we said, sort of of this of this genre and this level of prestige, that don't have a sort of romantic requited climax, or yeah. that that allow effectively nothing to happen. I think I think I, I think I remember reading something Salman Rushdie wrote about the book where he says like you know nothing happens but everything happens or everything that does happen happens beneath the surface yeah and I think that Anthony Hopkins portrays that so incredibly well in ways think... that that you can't do in the book because you yeah. do get it from from through performance alone and, and Emma Thompson of course I mean she's she's equally sort of I think that for her, those emotions and what she's repressing are perhaps more visible on the surface, where it's very micromanaged in in Tony Hopkins' performance. I think in his performance is measured in every turn of his head, mm. because it has to be every sort of move of any kind of limb. There are, you know, especially in that last hour, it's so as a performance, it is so kind of microscopically imagined because it has to be because it's the only way that he can you know that we can kind of see any emotion on the surface and you know I was so taken it just as I said just by how he moves his head like any kind of the the kind of the slight ways that he allows himself to look not just at Miss Kenton but at anyone um and I think it's just he's so remarkable in this Mm. it's just astonishing I, I think his performance is just 
yeah, really, really, really beautiful. He didn't win the Oscar for this one. No, he didn't. We had this conversation last night. Tom Hanks won for Philadelphia. Right, because he'd won re- fairly recent. What three? Two yeah, years three, like three for, for, for Silence of the Lambs. And, yeah, it would have um, been two years before. Am I right in saying Emma Thompson wins for How It's End? Or does she? When does she win her Oscar? Ooh, she nomi- they were both she... nominated for this, but they didn't win. Um, yes, because it was also the yeah, same she, year. She won, as, um... she, she won her first Best Actress in like the year before for How It's End. Okay, um, and then but she it's the year the... of um. Schindler's List as well. So I mean, it's a, it's a big true. year actually for yeah. adult drama. I'm just tra- I'm just trying to sort of, you know, I mean, I don't give a toss about who won the Oscar for their performances. <laughs> I just think it's interesting to think where where both of these actors would have been at that point in their career and what they would perhaps have been associated associated with and understood as. Emma Thompson's career is really sort of taking off, and she has. I mean, it's interesting actually. She was. End. So she had the Oscar for Howard's End, but she's nominated in both categories. Like, yeah, I'm just looking at it now. She's mm. nominated in Best Actress for this, and she's nominated in Supporting Actress for In the Name of the Father. Oh, right. So that's a... Yeah, that's another really interesting film. And the same year, actually, Holly Hunter wins for The Piano, but she's also in Supporting Actress for The Firm. That's really interesting. That's an inter- that's mm. a, This is a really good year. I mean, obviously, this is a total different conversation. No, I know. Um, I, I, I suppose the point I'm trying to get at is like, if you can you even compare Hannibal Lecter to 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 Stephen? I don't, <laughs> I don't know, and I think I must have seen. I must have been around that age, maybe slightly younger when I first. Well, I've only seen Silence of the Lambs once. That was quite enough times for me. Um, yes, I was going to say, but yeah, I I think that there is still a sort of where there's a sort of sinister subtlety to his performance as Hannibal Lecter. Mm. This is this is very much a sort of sympathetic one because I think mm. it is sympathetic. I I try to empathise with him, and I think maybe I used to be able to empathise with him, but now it really is just sympathy. It's like I feel really sorry for him. I feel desperately sorry for him. It's because, because he so wants to change. Yes, and, can't, and and can't. It's like he's physically incapable of of acting and I think you know what really drives it home is the way they kind of and I wish I could say that this was me but it isn't it was something that my flatmate picked up on last night is that you know when they go to you know when he goes and meets her in the west country at the end of the film it's the first time there's any electric light in the in the whole Mm. film um and the rest of it it's all kind of natural lighting or kind of candlelight and that you know when they're on the pier and it's this kind of bright light and then all of a sudden you're kind of it's kind of driven home to you that it's been 20 years and that he hasn't done anything and that he has actually kind of held on and that they both have actually kind of held on to this for 20 years and it still can't even be consummated with an acknowledgement that they that they that they still actually can't say anything and I mean you're much more well versed than me in the kind of um you know mid-century British cinema and I mean obviously brief encounter as she said mm. um but it you know it feels in that moment kind of that kind of yeah. evocative scene is very kind of a deliberate homage to that kind of mid-century yeah I um, so. british film mm. yeah I, I completely agree um and it is interesting that there is sort of imagery like that 
because sometimes it can be a bit heavy-handed I think the whole like pigeon getting stuck inside the, uh, the house <laughs> I was gonna ask you about this like I mean I suppose it's fitting that we're kind of nearing it's... the end of this but the, the kind of the, the, the last scene is the kind of him and Christopher Reeve freeing the pigeon you know, so, so, sometimes and I think I think this is true of the book as well actually and maybe maybe it's a slight issue that you know that there is a lot of subtlety but then there's also like these incredibly like <laughs> bludgeoned metaphors that like hit you over the head with like look he's the bird he's stuck in my house <laughs> he needs to be freed um and it's I, I I do some you know maybe maybe that's why it makes for such a good sort of text for study when like at pre when you're 16 at yeah. pre-university level sort of you know it we're not we're not we're not talking like of mice and men in the inspector cause level heavy <laughs> heavy handed heavy handed imagery and, and class analysis we're talking you know like sort of 16 17 year old level of of, <laughs> of, of 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 imagery and analysis um and i i do i suppose i really would love to know and this is something i should investigate the difference between harold pinter's screenplay and um, Ruth Proud Valor's screenplay and how different it would have been because I feel like she gives it the sort of merchant ivory flourish she gives it well she gives it the heat and dust thing that I think she I was does. talking about I think that's yeah. her yeah and then merchant ivory give it the sort of ostentatious glorified camp which we know and love <laughs> um, but she she sort of takes the text she takes the text that she adapts fairly literally. Whereas yeah. I would imagine that Pinter probably would have written something more subtle. I don't know. I haven't read his original screenplay. I think I, I mean, I also haven't. Um, I think, I mean, I can only imagine that the Pinter version would probably not have that final scene in it. Yeah. Exactly. That, I mean, I mean, just 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 to draw a sort of simplistic mm. difference. I don't, I don't because think P- that that's how Pinter would you, end. Well, you look film. look at his his plays and things, and they all sort of end on. But he allows himself to end on an exceptionally bleak note, <laughs> and he is someone who is so in tune with sort of class dynamics of Britain, well, and, yeah, and, and emotion, and sort of the way that. Um, that 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 sort of intercourse between between. British people um that that I think lends itself so well to to some to a book like this I mean Ishiguro must have been familiar with Pinter when he was writing this I mean and I I don't hate the ending I agree that it's heavy-handed but I kind of like that and this is such a facile way of saying it but I'm going to say it anyway because I suppose it's quite funny um I quite like the um the sort of Emmerdale-esque final shot of the um the kind of drone zoom out Mm, on the mm -hmm. house because it kind of I think situates um it in that kind of domestic yeah sort of soapy context that I mean and I, I don't suppose that you know James Ivory was saying yeah let's do the Emmerdale credits no. <laughs> on the final show of this film but it kind of it <laughs> it puts it very much mm-hmm. in that kind of heritage of having you know he releases the bird but actually the and that is kind of heavy-handed like I agree yeah. but then the final shot I quite like that it ends on this kind mm-hmm. of long drone zoom out of the house and actually we kind of take ourselves out of it and we remove ourselves yeah. from everything that's just gone on for the last two hours and 10 minutes. And I think it really, you know, 
brings it back to that kind of heritage of mm. uh, British film and television. And I think it's a as an actual final shot, and I agree that Pinter would have ended it differently. I think it really works. Yeah, definitely. Um, and, and I think that the, the house itself is sort of um, the, the 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 facades of Darlington Hall are um, Durham Park. Which I remember going to once where is on, that? On, on holiday. I can tell you exactly where that is. Because I was wondering last night what um, house it was, and I didn't look it up. It is Durham Park because I remember it's um, it's in South Gloucestershire, and I remember because we were going, we were we were visiting on holiday once, and I remember walking down the path towards the front of the house, and suddenly I was hearing like Richard Robbins' music in my head. I was like, <laughs> I know this place. How old were you? Oh, I don't know about. 18, 19, 20, I don't know. Uh, yeah, I, don't I remember know. being like 17 and being at Blenheim Palace and being like, wow, this is the house from the Duchess. Right, exactly. <laughs> it's exactly like that. And I remember just being like, oh my goodness, it's Darlington Hall. Um, and <laughs> but, uh, I, I suppose I'm, it's it's so interesting because it still looks like that. And it's, it's you know, that's, yeah. that's, that's something that's so interesting about the National Trust is sort of clinging on to the past in this country and having mm. and keeping these these houses maintained and, and 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 as they were is that that's sort of what it feels like by the end of the film is that this is a this is a this is an historic house it's not yeah it's not a lived-in house it's sort of a, a plaything for an eccentric american millionaire um, and that he is himself and the fa- a and historical the, and, object. And the, exactly, and the very fact that he still has a butler is quaint, mm. and it's it's um, it's clinging on to a form of nostalgia that that doesn't really that maybe British people don't actually have. You know, he's an American; he's sort of come over and and wants this sort of old way of English living. That, and it's failing before yeah. his very eyes. I love that mm. shot in the like the first five minutes of the film of Mr. Siemens putting the burnt toast in his pocket because yes. Cook can't do two things. She can't make breakfast and she can't watch the toast. And obviously getting an electric toaster is out of the question. And mm. I think that that is such and, the, a... and, and, and the staff sort of fading from shot around yeah. him. It's sort of like, you know, we're down on our, on our, on our staff list. It's... Yeah, it's it's a great way to introduce the film and then to kind of consider that in conjunction with the ending, as you say. Um, it's It really is evocative of that kind of dwindling um, way of life. Yeah. I, I love the National then. Trust, Lillian. I love the National Trust. <laughs> <laughs> I think the National Mad Trust do wonderful, invaluable work. Mm. And um, I have many fond memories of my dad um, being a teacher and us going um national trusting as a verb um over summer and going to see many country houses i have not been to darlington hall i wish that i had um and if i went now i would have just as wonderful a time because i would be in those grounds um pretending to be um well probably not pretending to be emma thompson because i wouldn't um probably be having a very good time but i'd be pretending to be lena Heedy. Nice. um yeah she's having a great know, time She's having a great time. She's she's she's, 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 she's bonking in the bushes. She's, she's getting her man. You know, <laughs> she's the only person in the film getting their so man. She is. She is. She's the only person in the film having any sex. I mean, this is the thing. Is that I think. I mean, Burst not to derail the. Well, I mean, yeah, maybe Hugh Grant is having. Well, Hugh Grant is supposed to be getting married to a woman. That is the whole reason why the birds and bees conversation is, comes yes. about. Yeah. Um, but I mean, I suppose we're supposed to assume that he's certainly not having any heterosexual sex. Well, indeed. Um, <laughs> which is 
almost always the case when Hugh Grant shows up in a Merchant Ivory is yes he he's is he only gay. in two yes but I mean you you're in Morris and then you come up in another of those films you're you're not straight yeah. coded no um. Hugh Grant really is, is he? I mean, <laughs> I mean, I mean, not to, again, not to derail the conversation because I could do like three hours on this, mm. but um, he's clearly gay coded in Paddington too. Oh yeah, Phoenix <laughs> Phoenix Buchanan is a, Phoenix uh, Buchanan. Um, great name, master of arts. Yeah. Um, <laughs> we've just been having an off microphone conversation about names. We were. <laughs> You need to do like a Patreon episode where um you get the full on cut. Um... Yeah, I like the sound of that. I also am now like my mind is racing about the idea of a podcast where you go to like different national trust properties, set up a record, <laughs> set up a record and record and you, in the do, property. We do and, walking and, and around recording. Well, there, there's like there's like documentary series on like Channel Four, like well, George, George Clark National Trust Unlocked. That's Lillian a, Crawford, yeah. Amazing Spaces. Lillian Crawford's Amazing Spaces. Yeah. But, um, do I have do I have to do a George Jackson play? <laughs> I'd, I'd watch it if you. Did. I don't know how good that would be, and I'm not going <laughs> to do it now. <laughs> I um, but yeah, no, I think um, I mean, I've totally lost point of where we were, but um, <laughs> which is a theme of this conversation, but um, no, I think um, you know, when I was a child, we used to go and see all these country houses, and I think that really kind of keys in to why I love this film but also Mm -hmm. period dramas in general because it is evocative to be in a country house because you are literally walking history and um and you do feel the kind of sense well I mean I suppose if you're kind of in tune in the way that I guess that we are you do feel these this kind of sense of um Mm -hmm. the people who were there and the people who gave their life to these buildings because they loved the buildings and they loved the people and they loved what the buildings stood for Mm -hmm. um and those buildings now stand for well the national trust you know suggests that they still stand for what they did stand for what in a very different context and that's a great thing that the way that the national trust has recontextualized Mm -hmm. all these properties as kind of an open access uh you know available uh network of British history but um you know you go there and you do still feel the sense and certainly when you go to the places that that aren't just that are privately owned like Blenheim and Chatsworth I guess yeah of course examples you feel it more acutely there but um the kind of histories of these places that are kind of locked into the walls Mm. of them yeah definitely and I think that there was certainly like a lot of childish glee that I get from watching a film like this and I certainly remember getting when I saw the first episode of Downton Abbey when that was broadcast and, <laughs> you know, of, of seeing things that you've seen in kitchens and in in rooms like, yes. like things that absolutely you must not touch being used and and yeah. seeing what their function is like there's a there's a couple of montages when sort of the house is getting ready for dinner and there's like a close-up of like one of those knife washing machines that I've always <laughs> been fascinated by which are like these sort of like barrels with with holes in them yes that you stick right. all, you stick the knives in and you turn a handle and it and it cleans the knives yeah you're right and it's such a fascinating object and I've always wanted to one used and then there's one being used in this there's film. some <laughs> great like setup scenes in this actually like the whole the scene where they're kind of um polishing the silver it's just yeah. like great to see silver getting polished like yeah. it just looks like it because every, it, every, it looks every, so everyone alien, has wanted actually. to pull like one of those like um servant 
chords in a room <laughs> when you see them or, or press one of the buttons to summon and see if someone appears and you absolutely must not do that because you will get thrown out yeah <laughs> and as, as it's probably right because <laughs> these are very old things that should not be touched um I remember I, I worked at um I spent a summer in fact it was the summer after I after I'd sort of finished working on on remains of the day and and, and i worked at um chartwell at winston uh, the house of the churchills and i was i remember being allowed to sort of clean all of these objects and and walk around the rooms in ways that i hadn't been able to and i was allowed to be in the archives and it was like oh, i'm allowed to suddenly like touch all of the things that i've always been told not to touch which <laughs> as, I, as i said earlier the worst thing you can possibly do with me is tell me not to do something because i will immediately <laughs> do it and um I, I think i've always sort of pushed my luck in national trust properties as to what i can actually sort of use so it is nice to see these things sort of come to life and be used in that way and and as a but at the same time i think what i was trying the, the point that sort of started this this part of what we were talking about is that they are um they feel so consigned to a previous era and and a part of history and 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 stevens is is such a part of that um i think i brought that back to i think that was a really good (laughs) trend and professional transition that um belies all the ways in which this conversation has been extremely rambling it has but i like that i I think it's it's, been lovely it's, it's good to have to use these films as a springboard for all different sorts of themes that come up in films and i'm sure and you know it would be wonderful to do another film at some point something something quite different maybe a Gainsborough I haven't done a a Gainsborough episode yet and I really want to we should Um, do a Gainsborough we should we We should should do a James Mason Gainsborough we should get my we should get my grandma on as a correspondent yes (laughs) can we do Man in Grey or would, that you, would, that or, would... would you have a different Mason? No, that would hit different. <laughs> like that would be really, really good. Yeah, like that that's would like be... a counterpoint to what to the type of conversation <laughs> we've had. Something completely. It would just be us sort of thirsting for an hour. Which I, you know, <laughs> love. Um, and and it's my great. grandma third mic on. Um... <laughs> I know. I would love to. We should. We should do that. It would be should. really fun. We should. Um, Thank you so much. This has been absolutely wonderful. Um, it's been and I really my appreciate it. Thank no, you. it's been lovely. It's been so much fun. If you've got an idea for an article or a podcast, you can contact me via Twitter. My handle is at Lil Croft, with three L's in Lil, which is where I'll be posting about new writing and episodes. Do also get in touch if you fancy appearing as a guest and have a film you'd love to discuss with me. The Listen to Lillian podcast is available via the blog and all the usual channels, including Spotify and Apple, so don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. All that remains for me to say is thank you for listening and toodle pip!